Psalm 73, starting at verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply, till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Thanks be to God. The Lord is here right now as so often the question is whether we are let's be quiet let's be quiet and attend to the fact that we're in the Lord's presence and then a simple story not as exciting as Johnny's version of David and Goliath, but just this. Once upon a time, there was a man, or maybe it was a woman, and things weren't perfect in their life. In fact, in many ways, they were pretty rubbish. And the man, or woman, looked around and saw that other people had an easier life than them. And they thought, blow this. 
I don't see the point. What is the point of making an effort? And God, what's he playing at? Does he actually care about the rubbish in my life? Other people have got it fine, and they're not even the good guys. There. Anyway, he or she went to a different place completely. A place where God was. And God took their hand and said, open your eyes. And everything shifted, even though none of their circumstances changed. The way they looked at and felt about and walked through the world and life and God and themselves and what counts as good. Absolutely transformed. Obviously, that's Psalm 73. And what I'm going to do now, uh, which will work for some of you and not for others, is a five-minute Bible study. We're going to, uh, I'm going to concentrate on one strand of Psalm 73 in the preachy bit. Uh, But just so you get to know Psalm 73 a bit better, five minutes Bible study. You'll need your Bibles open if you want to do this bit. If you don't want to do this bit, no worries. I'll wave at you in five minutes' time and then I'll start the preachy bit. So, Mostly words and patterns. If you've got your Bible open, then first verse and last verse. Good. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Last verse. As for me, it's good to be near God. This is a psalm about what's good, whether God is good and what counts as good. Second thing. Look for a word which comes up six times. Verse 1. Verse 7, verse 13, 21, and a couple of times in 26. Got it? Heart. So, in knowing whether God is good and what counts as good, it's going to be a matter of the heart. Thirdly, there's a sort of green dot word at the beginning of three different verses, which the NIV does nicely. It's 1, 13, and 18. And it's like saying, there's a green dot next to each of those three verses. Uh, See if there's some pattern or connection between the three of them. Verse 1, the overarching conclusion, surely God is good to Israel. Verse 13, a dumbass interim conclusion, When he thought that, surely it's a waste of time being committed to God. And verse 18, a different angle on the real conclusion. Surely those without God are in a right mess. Another thing, a blue dot word. A word that comes up a few times and makes patterns for us. Not so clear in our translations, but four times you've got and me or as for me, and they're in two pairs. Verse 2 and verse 28. As for me, I was really wobbling. 
And verse 28, as for me, I really know where it's at. Good, that's being near to God. The second pair of the and me's, or as for me's, less clear altogether, but verse 22, and me, I was an idiot. Verse 23, and me, things could not be better. I'm with God. Then, a bunch of contrasts. Uh, There's a contrast in verse 2 and 18 about walking and falling. Verse 2, I wobbled and I nearly fell when I thought I had a rough deal and blamed God. Verse 18, actually, those without God in their lives are on the shakiest ground. Verses 9 and 25, a heaven and earth contrast. Verse 9, those without God think they've got heaven and earth. Verse 25, heaven and earth, ha, you're better than them both, Lord. Verses 17 and 24, an afterwards uh, coupling. Uh, The final destiny word in verse 17 is afterwards. So the afterwards of the bad guys is bad news. And verse 24, the afterwards of those uh, whose hearts are towards God is glory. Verses 27 and 28, far and near. Verse 27, far from God, bad news. Verse 28, near to God, good news. Verses 15 and 28, stuff not to say and stuff to say. Verse 15, if you're thinking uh, God's mean, what's the point? Just don't say it. Verse 28, if you're thinking God's done lots of deeds, well, tell everybody. Uh, The story as a whole then, we've already gone there, but let me say it once more. Verse 1, overall conclusion. Verses 2 to 12, I was really fed up and wobbling because I saw how well other people were doing and they weren't even the good ones. Verses 13 and 14, I felt like giving up, to be honest. What is the point? Verses 15 to 22, I went to a different place, the presence of God, and got a whole different perspective. Verses 23 to 26, what was it like to live in that place, the presence of God? And verses 27 and 28, there's a summary. And then lastly, in our little five-minute Bible study, lastly, God. Where's God? Well, he's in verse 1, but then verses 2 to 16, he's not there. Well, he's there in verse 11 when the, uh, the bad guys say he's not there, sort of thing. But verses 2 to 16, he's not there. Then he begins to build momentum, verses 17 to 22, and God comes onto the scene. And then, verses 23 to 28, wow, he is everywhere. He's either spoken to or spoken about in every line. And because those five verses are about the best verses in the whole Bible... I'm going to read them to you again. Yet, I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? 
and earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. And if you didn't bother with the Bible study bit, uh, we're back. And I've got six questions for you with some reflections. And the first question is this. What do you feel fed up about? What's not good in your life? What could make your life better? What do you look at other people and think, it's all right for them, they've got such and such, or they don't have such and such? What are you fed up about? Don't go all churchy on me and say, oh, well, other people have have got it worse than I have, or I know God's got his good purposes. I'm just asking you, what do you feel fed up about? And probably, if you're like Asaph, it will fall into different categories, like verse 4. I'm fed up with something about my body or the bodies of people I love. It doesn't look good or it doesn't feel good or it's ill or it's falling apart. Physical health and well-being, it's all right for the bad guys. Look at verse 4. They haven't got any struggles, Is on the way to death stuff. Their bodies are healthy and strong, it's all right for them. What about my body, my illness, my weakness, my ugliness, my what? About my body or the ones I love? Fed up about that. What about finances and possessions? Look at verse 9 and 10. They're actually quite difficult verses to translate, but you can see there's possession and abundance and stuff. And then look at verse 12, amassing wealth at the end. What am I fed up about? Well, I haven't got such and such um, supreme financial independence or just a bit more space. We are so cramped. Or this item or that item. Thirdly, hassles. Hassles, I think that's probably the word. Verse 5, free from common human burdens. Or verse 12, always free of care eternally carefree, if you're going to be literal about it. No hassles. So when I asked you what you're fed up about, it wouldn't surprise me if just hassles, problems, might be relationships, might be job, lack of job, relationships, lack of relationships, all sorts of things. But anyway, what are you fed up about? What's not good right now? And do you... Think, feel that before God and tell God. I'm going to shut up for 30 seconds. Just tell God what you're fed up about.
Here's a quick one, number two. <clears throat> Question number two. Does it sometimes feel to you, in relation to the thing you're fed up about, or other things, does it sometimes feel to you as if God is, is sort of feel as if God is sort of being a bit mean? Or, if not mean, then unnecessarily ungenerous. Uh, verse 1, clearly, that's his conclusion. God is good to Israel. What was his wobble in verse 2 and quite a lot longer? Maybe God's not that good after all. Maybe he is being a bit mean to me. He's nice to other people, but a bit mean to me in respect of this thing. After all, he's in charge. He's got total power. If he wanted to sort out the things that are not good in my life, of course he could sort it out, couldn't he? So why doesn't he? Now, I ask you what you feel about that, because if I asked you what you thought about it, you'd trot out your excellent theology, and excellent theology is excellent theology. But at the moment, we're trying to be honest with God and just saying, what does it feel like when God doesn't sort out the rubbish in our lives? When we know he could, what's that feel like? Oh, come on, Lord. So if we turned it into a prayer, I think we should. Let's turn it into a prayer. Lord, we know, we know, we know, we know that you are good and you do all things well and you're absolutely to be trusted. We know that. And with regard to the things that we feel fed up about, sometimes we think, oh, come on, Lord. You could sort this out, but you haven't. What's, what's going on? Thanks for what we know. Thank you. We can be honest with you. Amen. Here's a third question. Does it feel sometimes as if it's a bit pointless claiming that we're on God's side or claiming that God's on our side? Verse 13, it all feels a bit pointless to Asaph. I don't know why I've bothered. What's the point of me making an effort, sticking with it, when it doesn't actually cash out in a real difference? We feel sometimes like saying, give me a break, Lord. Help me out here, Lord. Is it really worth it? Now, in verse 15, when he felt wobbly, something held him back. And it's possible, if we look into our hearts, that we'll feel the same. You know what? Sometimes I could get quite close to just jacking it in, forgetting it. But one of the things that stops me is uh, all the other Christians. Because, well, partly because they flip and try and re-evangelize me if I gave up. Um, and that would be a hassle. And partly because lots of them are really nice. Um, and so the people of God stop us from giving up sometimes when we feel really, what's the We know the logical errors of saying, what's the point? Firstly, well, hang on, we're not committed to God so he gives us good, good sweets, are we? And two, anyway, who defines what's good? But logic isn't an issue here. What's the issue is, it feels pointless sometimes. That's the third question. Does it feel sometimes as though it's a bit pointless? claiming that we're on God's side or God's on our side. Here's a fourth question for you. Can we argue our way out of this? And if not, then what? I'll help you with a quick answer. Can we argue our way out of this? Nah. 
No, we can't. What changes things for Asaph is not more knowledge, a better intellect, more uh, information. He goes to a different place. He goes to the holy place of God. You can see that in verse 17. He goes to a different place. It's not to get knowledge. And I'm really sorry, I hate doing this, but there's a translation problem. In verse 16 and 17, at the beginning of 16, it says understood. At the end of 17, it says understood. They are different verbs. This is not a matter of understanding. Those of us, Caroline, me, others as well, who are advanced psychotherapists, we have this important maxim. Understanding is the booby prize. It's not, oh, I've got more info now. I understand it now. They're different verbs. Really, it should say, uh, when I tried to get my head around this, then it really hurt my eyes, verse 16. And then verse 17 would be something like, until I went into the holy place of God and reflected on there afterwards. That's what makes the difference. He went to the place where God was. One of my favorite stories in the whole Bible is Gethsemane, because there's the Lord Jesus in his angst and deep doubt. And what does he do with it? He takes it to the place where God is, which in Jesus's case was meant lying down on the ground, sweating, crying. For Asaph, not new arguments, but a different way of looking, not better logic, but a relocation of his attention or consciousness. The presence of God, God's holy place. We didn't do in our little Bible study another of the word patterns, but in 22, 23, and 25, uh, 22, 23, and yeah, 25, uh, you can't probably see it in English, but you've got with you, with you. It's absolutely key to the psalm, actually, because what changes him? We're clever. I mean, lo lots of us in, in this building this morning, we're clever, aren't we? But so are the people who killed Jesus. Clever doesn't do it. Going to a different place, the presence of God does it. Question number five. When we go to the place where God is, what happens? What's it like when we see and feel differently? Well, like I said earlier on, his circumstances don't change. It's where he went, the company he's keeping, the criteria he's applying to what counts as good. Because now this is life with God, the God we meet in our Lord Jesus. Verse 23, I am always with you. You're holding my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. You're running my life. You take me to the best place. It's you that I want. You are my good. You are my strength, my portion, my present, my future. What counts, what I value, what I treasure, what satisfies me is life with God. What fills me and stays with me? Life with God. Was it a good day today? Was it a good week last week? Has this been a good year so far? 
Is that a good life? Do not apply criteria, please, of physical health, possessions, amount of hassles, relationships, accomplishments. Apply this criterion. Verse 28, am I near God? Am I with God? And this is all over the Bible. You know it full well. Don't, we don't even want to go from here, says Moses, unless you come with us. My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. David, I only, there's only one thing I want, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and seek him in his temple. Mary, the one thing necessary, chosen the better part, sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to him with God. You ask the best people you've ever known. So, what's most important to you? And they will say, well, I hate this illness, or I hate this poverty, or I hate these hassles, but I'd rather have them and God with me than the whole world and not God. That's my criterion for good with God. Rutherford, good old Rutherford, welcome, welcome, cross of Christ, if Christ be with it. That's what all the songs, did you choose the songs? Brilliant. That's what all the songs we've been singing are about, with God. And now the the, what's the point question gets turned on its head. It's no longer what's the point of being committed to God. It's actually now what's the point of being alive? What's the point of taking another breath unless I am with God? Now, don't get me wrong. It's not God and therefore nothing else. Like, I have God, so I won't bother breathing anymore. Or I have God, so who needs food? Or I have God, or don't bother me about a job or relationships or anything like that. Not that. God is good. Life with God is what counts as good. And other things are good in relation to him and being with him. That relativizes them, frames them, gives them their raison d'etre, their meaning. It grounds them. So if you're putting your good, you're locating your good in anything other than with God, with God in Christ, you're doomed. It just doesn't work. If you're locating your life you're good in God, great. First, life with God, then, fill your boots. I mean, Asaph, first, for me, I'll define good for you. It's being near God, verse 28. For Paul, I'll define, I'll define life for you. It's Christ. For me to live is Christ. And after that, it's carts and horses, isn't it? After that, like I say, fill your boots. Eat and drink and breathe and enjoy good things and have friendships and conquer the world and write books and have babies and make meals and wash bottoms and pull weeds up and sing songs and do accounts and all fine. But within the frame of this different place of with God. Uh, last one. 
Oh, my stopwatch has paused. It really did. Um, last one then. How do we get to and stay? And it said 21, and now when I've pressed it, it says 25. <laughs> so, how do we get to this different place of with God? It's where Asaph went, where we've got to go. He calls it the holy place, the sanctuary in verse 17. And you know full well that where you go, in a sense, is about where your attention goes. We're about the discipling of attention. It's not better behavior or theology, but a shift of awareness that takes place in Psalm 73. It's being in the place where God takes our hand and says, I'm here. Verse 23 would be, I mean, 23a is, it's all I want, really. It's all you want, really, isn't it? Yet I am always with you. So what's the holy place? What's the place where, where you'll know the presence of God? You know the answers. I'm going to give you one obvious and three slightly less obvious very quickly. The one obvious is Jesus. Emmanuel. God with us. The holy place. Time with the Jesus of the Gospels. Time with God's big yes to us. And especially the cross. Far from God is bad news. Near to God is good news. And you know full well, we were afar off. And we have been brought near. Because there was one who was near who lived at the heart of God, and for some hours he was sent into the furthest country of all, the far country of darkness and curse. We were far off, we've been brought near, because he who was near went afar off. And it's Jesus of the cross, Jesus in the Gospels, he's the holy place. Get near to him, look at him in the Gospels, and you'll be more and more and more confident that God is good. And the other three are uh, slightly weird for most of you, but they're in the Bible. One, your body. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So if you want to uh, know the presence of God, live with God, stop living just from there upwards. Pay attention to your whole body. Do it now for five seconds. And just to attend to your body is to be slightly more present. And since, another thing, here now, God is here now, then if we are present, we will be with God. He's here now. He's in every person. Every person's made in his image. He's in every object. Every object's been made by him. He's in every circumstance. He works out all things in accordance with the purpose of his will. God's everywhere, here, now. His name is here, now, or I am. God's name is here, now. So do you want to be with God? You better be here, now, yourself. That will mean your body, because your body is inescapably here, now. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, one place you meet the presence of God. So is your depths, your interior. He the heaven of heavens can't contain him, and he dwells in the hearts of the friends of his son. But we live busy, busy, noise, noise, up in our heads on the surface, so we never get to our interior, which is like a TARDIS, 
where it's quite small and yet when we go there we find we're at the throne of grace we are in the heavenlies so those four things the jesus of the gospel and especially his cross your body here now and your interior what's the gospel for today god is good good is defined as being near god he brought us from afar to be continually with him is life go to that place and stay in that place and the way you see the world yourself life god and what counts as good changes let's be quiet for a moment Father, you've heard me, words, words, words. Please, by your spirit, bring home what's really true, the gospel of Christ crucified and risen in ways which turn our eyes to him and enable us this week to be continually with you. And we ask it in Jesus' name.